Our Old Testament passage today comes from the second book of Kings, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And I'm using this uh, to prepare us for our gospel reading and sermon text from the 17th chapter of Luke, verses 5 through 10. So first we'll turn to 2 Kings, chapter 4. And then Luke chapter 17. We go back in time to the age of the monarchy, the divided monarchy. So many long years ago, God, however, has not changed. 2 Kings 4. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him, and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debt. And you and your sons can live on the rest. And now we turn to the 17th chapter of Luke. Our sermon text is verses 5 to 10. I'll begin, however, at the first verse. Jesus said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. 
Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Amen. May God add His blessing to this reading and our understanding of His Word. Now for the past 12 weeks or so, we have stepped away from our study of Luke's Gospel just long enough to consider some other topics that are important to this small but growing congregation of the Lord. Today, for the first time, we are returning to Luke's account of Jesus' ministry, and a few words of review seem to be in order after all this time. So the situation we're walking into is this. Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. This is actually the final pilgrimage of the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry. And the road that he's taking is taking him southward through Perea. On the eastern side of the Jordan River, which is not the shortest way. It's a longer journey than he'd intended because way back in chapter 9, the Samaritans who lived along the more direct route to Jerusalem, the Samaritans had made it clear that Jesus just wasn't welcome there. Not if he was on his way to Jerusalem. Not welcome. The inhospitality of that Samaritan village turned out to be only a slight foretaste of the overwhelming sufferings that lay ahead of him. Because at the end of that journey, there in Jerusalem, it's not just another happy Passover, but a criminal's cross that awaits him. And with every step Jesus takes along the way, with every step, he knows this very well. He knows what's ahead of him. In fact, he's been telling his disciples ever since Peter confessed him to be the Messiah, way up in Caesarea Philippi, in that very eventful chapter 9. Jesus makes no secret of the fact to his disciples. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up the third day. That's what awaits them once they reach their destination. But even the prospect of his own violent death at the hands of these ignorant, ungrateful men doesn't deter our Lord Jesus Christ. He presses on. And beloved, this is remarkable, isn't it? Think of it. 
Just take a moment to reflect on it. He presses on in the deadly task of your redemption. Bear in mind that this man, Jesus, is every bit as human as you and I are. In fact, I think a very good case can be made for the fact that he is more human than you and I are. Because he's a better specimen of humanity. He is a better specimen of every ingredient that goes into making one a human. Jesus Christ is the very image of God undefiled by sin. Untarnished. Which suggests to me that he's more profoundly loving, more profoundly wise, more profoundly gracious than I, the sinner, could ever hope to be. And more profoundly sensitive. Our Lord Jesus wrestled every day with the dread and the horror of what lay ahead of him. And yet still, courageously, he presses on. There's an occasion that John records for us in his 12th chapter when the calm, steady, unflappable Jesus says this. He says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. His own soul is troubled. And still his relentless love for sinners urges him onward. On his southward course toward Jerusalem and the cross. But friends, that's not all that makes this journey so remarkable. Because even these prospects weighing upon his mind and heart, even with them there, in his mind, in his heart, still he's gladly teaching the crowds that came to him and that followed along with him along the way. Jesus is not in some self-isolating, foot-dragging, sulky, deep blue funk. He's not. By word and deed, he's teaching them concerning the kingdom of God, a kingdom of which it must have become increasingly clear to many of those who followed him that this man himself is the king. This kingdom he's preaching about and teaching about, it's his kingdom. So that by the time they finally reach Jerusalem, there's no doubt in the mind of anyone with eyes to see, anyone with ears to hear. Luke 19, verse 37, we'll be getting to this in a matter of weeks or perhaps a couple of months. It says, And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples, that was those who were going along with him, the whole multitude of the disciples, 
began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So along the way, with all these things weighing upon Him, along the way, Jesus teaches them, teaches us. As our passage today opens, He has just laid out for His disciples their twin duties. First of all, of giving no offense to others. Giving no offense. And then secondly, of forgiving from the heart every brother brought to repentance by a well-aimed rebuke. When he repents, forgive him. These Christian duties represent a very tall order, of course, for sinners who are naturally bent on generating and cherishing and tenaciously holding on to offenses. Jesus says to them, don't do it. Don't offend. And when your brother offends, forgive. I mean, just reflect on this for a moment. Humanity's fall into sin resulted in all of Adam's children becoming a pretty surly, sulky, cross-grained, mean-spirited bunch. Hasn't it? Consider the very first two children ever born into the world. Brothers they were, of course. One of them premeditated, planned, and executed the murder of the other. And then throughout subsequent history, God's law restrained sin somewhat, restrained it, but that's all the law could do. The law had no power to change the flinty human heart with its nasty, natural inclinations. And now Jesus says, as for you, give no offense. And when your brother sins and you rebuke him, as you should, and he repents, then forgive him. And now let's add to these two Christian duties another layer of difficulty. Make this total forgiveness of others your whole new way of life. Make it your way of life. Immerse yourself in this. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And now clearly this isn't about keeping records. The Holy Spirit by the Apostle Paul tells us that love keeps no record of wrongs. So we're not thinking, is this his sixth time or his seventh time? Or has he passed that to the eighth time? Now if this were about keeping records of wrongs committed against us, then keeping record of wrongs would be all that you and I ever get done in life. It would be all we do. No, Jesus here urges upon us the complete 
transformation of our character. The complete transformation of your character. This is about having and exercising an entirely new human nature. A redeemed human nature that's more like His. A new nature inclined neither toward sin nor toward bitterness, wrath, malice, anger, clamor, resentment, or the holding of a grudge. So let pure, unmixed forgiveness flow naturally and freely, unceasingly from the heart of every man or woman, boy or girl, redeemed by Christ and filled with His Spirit. That's the charge of our Lord Jesus Christ here. That's His charge. That's His command. That's the solemn duty of His disciples. While life lasts, let the grace of forgiveness full and free pour out of you endlessly. Endlessly. Like that widow's oil that we read about in the time of Elisha. Oil that has the power to settle debts and bring healing. Thinking through this matter this past week as I was preparing to preach, my mind naturally retraced its steps to um, a number of painful memories, both of my own offenses against others and taking offense at the sins of others against me. Some things are just pretty hard to let go of, aren't they? They're hard to let go of. And I'm thinking back to things that took place 15 or 20 years ago. It's no wonder then that upon hearing their charge from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle said to Jesus, increase our faith. Beloved, the transformation of your character and mind into what we've just been describing, humanly speaking, is a true mission impossible. It's an assignment from the Lord to extract oil from an empty jar. Enough oil, in fact, to settle every outstanding debt between myself and others. That's what he's telling us to do. And very plainly, I can't do it. It's not that I wouldn't if I could. It's that I can't. It's not in me. Carrying only the basic load of natural human kindness and tenderness, that natural kindness and tenderness that Cain showed toward his brother, Abel, I can't become this sort of person that you're directing me to be. The jar's empty. So Lord, if you want us to become this kind of person, then increase our faith. Increase our faith. That's the right answer. More faith is what we need if we ever expect to discharge our solemn Christian duty. More assurance 
of things hoped for. More conviction of things not yet seen. What we need is confidence in the positive final results of God's work. Only by the exercise of that heavenly gift of faith did the men of old gain approval. Don't we read that somewhere in Hebrews? And only by the exercise of that gift might we do likewise. Without faith. Without faith. It's impossible to please God. It is very easy to compare ourselves with others around us and come to a favorable verdict. It's too easy. It's very easy to harbor hurt feelings against someone and then, acting as my own judge and jury, to justify myself and decide that on balance, on balance, I am a pretty easygoing guy. Certainly, compared to him or compared to her. It's easy to make these human comparisons, friends, but it's wrong. It's just wrong. The straight edge of God's Word, the Word of our King, leaves us no room for negotiation with Him. A far better answer to the difficult Christian duty is the one that St. Augustine gave about 16 centuries ago. He said, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. When God fills this empty jar, which is my own soul, when He fills it, then I'll gladly pour it out, knowing there's always going to be more where that came from. Now, if you want to make comparisons of your life with others, your character with others, put your life up against the straight edge of Jesus' life. Because only He embodies heaven's standard of a human life well lived. Only He. The Lord answers the apostles' request for more faith, for an increase of faith. He answers by telling them, first of all, what might be done, even with a little faith. And secondly, what must be done with it. What might be done and what must be be done. Now it needs to be granted that the apostles had, even at this point in the Lord's ministry, the apostles had a little faith. Faith like a mustard seed. After all, they'd been there with Him to witness Jesus' miracles of healing. They'd been there when He calmed the raging sea. They'd been there with Him when He multiplied the loaves and the fish to feed thousands of people. They'd confessed Jesus to be the Son of God. They had. Already, they had. And what might be done with such small faith that carried within it such vast potential? He tells us what might be done with even a little faith. If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, 
be uprooted and be planted in the sea and they would obey you. Now it scarcely needs to be said, I hope, that the Lord doesn't say that this is what they as apostles should be doing, ought to be doing with the little faith they had. He's not recommending that they or anyone use their faith to rearrange the backyard shrubbery this way. What redemptive purpose would that serve anyway? If you move this yew bush over there and that sycamore tree over here and have things just the way you like it, by faith. That's not the purpose of it. Displays of raw power might excite people like Pharaoh's magicians in the Old Testament. They might excite and interest somebody like Simon Magus in the New Testament. But there's a gravity and a purpose to the apostolic office that restrains these men from unnecessary showmanship. Christianity is not a sideshow. The power of apostolic faith needs to be harnessed, needs to be harnessed to the sure eyewitness proclamation of the gospel and the consequent plucking of lost souls, even lost nations out of the fire of God's judgment. That's what your office as apostles is to be about, Jesus tells them. He's not saying what should be done with the little faith you have, but what might be done with it. What could be done with it if needed. And think through the book of Acts. The apostles would, in fact, on occasion, be called upon to do some pretty spectacular things, wouldn't they? Such is the awesome power of biblical faith. But beginning at verse 7, Jesus then moves on to the much weightier matter of what must be done with whatever measure of faith you have. Your faith isn't yet all that it should be. Not yet. Neither is mine. We waver, don't we? We waver. We fail. We get knocked down, but by grace, we get back up again. What must you do with this small measure of faith that you have? You must exercise it in a steady regimen of obedience. Obedience. That's what you do with it. This is an incredibly important point that the whole church militant, the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world today needs to understand that the gift of biblical faith isn't given to you as a plaything. Biblical faith isn't given to us as a plaything. The true knowledge of Jesus Christ and His kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit 
by means of the biblically reformed theology that explains him. God hasn't bestowed these things, these gifts of faith upon us for our own personal pleasure or our own personal convenience. He calls us by faith to obey. Obey. Now some of you may be just getting started in this Christian life. In the honored name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I say to you, welcome aboard. Welcome to the kingdom. There's plenty of good work to be done in the Lord's vineyard. And we're glad for your help as together we glorify and enjoy God under the common yoke of Christian obedience. Others of you, of course, have been at this for a long time now. You've been plowing the Lord's fields. You've been planting the seed of His Word. You've been gathering in the first fruits of His harvest. Some of us have been tending His sheep for years. And now here we are today, and I have to ask the question, have you and I, who've been at this for a long time, servants by grace of the Most High God, have we by now paid our dues? Have we? Do you and I have the liberty now, after all these years of serving the Lord, the liberty to just kick back and leave the rest of it to others? Let someone else do the work that remains? This past week, on Thursday, the 8th of April, 2021, happened to be the 30th anniversary of my returning home after Operation Desert Storm, the first Gulf War, April 8th. For over six months in Saudi Arabia and Iraq, I had the honor of serving as chaplain to a battalion of 930 combat engineers of the Army's 1st Cavalry Division. And that anniversary on Thursday prompted me to think back to the very beginning of my pastoral ministry nearly 37 years ago. Only two or three of you, I think, were even around back then. And charitable hearts among us might be inclined to say, just let Methuselah retire. But whatever my paid employment situation might be as pastor, the truth is that under the terms of our covenant agreement described here in verses 7 to 10, our Lord Jesus Christ gives none of us the option of retiring from His service. None of us. By the gracious gift of faith, I am today a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the grace of faith, I'll keep serving in some capacity up to and including the day of my death. By grace. And by the grace of faith, so will you. That's our duty as servants, purchased by the blood of our risen 
ascended and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, what might be done with a little bit of faith is spectacular. But what must be done with it, with whatever measure of faith you have, is really no less so, no less spectacular. Because what must be done is this. This is your solemn charge. Obediently to press on through every difficulty to the very end and so prove yourselves to be imitators of your Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.